Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for June 20th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, well, it's it's um, a little earlier today, and Catherine won't be on as planned because we had a lot of moving parts being Father's Day weekend um, and then things she had to take care of. And so we're even doing a more disjointed show Tim and I are going to talk with you 35 uh, to 40 minutes, and then we have an outstanding interview that I pre-recorded late in the week with Dr. Todd Belt of George Washington University, previously living and teaching for many years out in Hawaii, and we're mainly just going to talk to him about Hawaii politics, but Tim, I'll go ahead and tell you and tell our listeners that he's agreed to come on uh, in the future and talk about humor and politics and other topics as well. Very interesting guest, so that'll be at the end of the show, about 35 to 40 minutes in. But until then, we've got a lot of great topics to discuss. And right off, um, one that's been going on for a few weeks, but I think it's building steam and will unfortunately only continue to build more steam, and that is uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas is taking up Donald Trump's mantra and really what even if you think it should exist, should be a federal uh, responsibility, not a state one. And that is building the border wall along the uh, Texas-Mexico border. Um, Tim, substance or I don't want to say fluff or, or diversion maybe. Well, he's, uh, he made a splashy announcement with some – uh, other elected officials around him that he's going to use $250 million in taxpayers' money. And also, I believe, how did he put it, crowdsource financing to, to build barriers all along the state's border with Mexico now. The question is, how far will he be willing to go? There's about 1,200 miles of border with Mexico and Texas alone. The cost would be prohibitive. The Corps of Engineers, when they were constructing that 80 miles of Trump's wall or whatever it was, they were going through $22 million per mile to do that. Based on that, uh, the good governor would get a grand total of 11 miles of border barriers out of tw- out of twelve hundred, uh, and you, you know, David, a lot of the, some of this land belongs to the U.S. government because he's already asked the U.S. government to turn it over to the state of Texas, like that's gonna happen. And you know, there'll be the usual lawsuits and uh, not 
not lost on everyone, of course, is the fact that Abbott's running for re-election next year. And we've heard noises. We've talked about it on this show about 2024 and the GOP nomination and that a guy like him might be looking at that. Then there are these private landowners who own most of the land in question. Uh, a lot of them. And, you know, what are you going to do about them? Are you going to invoke eminent domain to take the land? And that it takes years to go through the court and do that, not to mention there's the good old Rio Grande River, which forms much of the border. And, you know, you, what are you going to do, put a fence in the middle of the river? Are you going to put a fence a mile on this side of the river? Uh, right now, right now, there are about 100 court cases left over from the Trump era that involve the government trying to seize privately owned land down through there uh, to construct, you know, border barriers. So uh, I know what I think about it. What do you What do you think happens up to? Well, I think it is a, a show. He wants to either make a show because for some reason he he may be vulnerable or he thought he might be in the Republican primary because he wasn't as right-wing as you possibly can get, um, which is, I guess, so many politicians that try to actually have some semblance of good government at times uh, get in trouble mm-hmm. with uh, the Republican Party's mm-hmm. right flank. And so this may be a way to – you know, help with that, or to build for 2024. I just don't. I think if Donald Trump doesn't run, Greg Abbott's not going to be the person they turn to. So I think I think he's really yeah, off but, the mark. But I guess if you're Texas Republican, you automatically think, oh, well, that's the largest pull of Republican votes for the past 30 plus years. I, I should be, you know, a top tier contender. Well, Rick Perry tested that theory, and it's not always true. Um, yeah. Now, it, but then I do get the sense, and it's the same thing with the DeSantis that kind of scares me. They're smarter than Trump. They know better on some level about a lot of these things, um, whereas I don't know that he always knew better. And so if you're just showing the flag, if you're just coming up with something to you know put on a big show for uh, the supporters, then you mentioned the Rio Grande River. Why don't you say, oh, well, it's a wonderful natural border. It's free. I mean, it already exists. doesn't cost any money. And then we'll shift the funds to elsewhere, and then you can yep, start counting but, mileage of the Rio Grande River and make it sound good. Um, yeah, but I but. Will one more thing I'm going to turn over to you, Tim. It amazes me. One of the most knowledgeable pe- people on the border is a Texas Republican. Former Congressman Will Hurd talked – all the time about the border, and he would say the wall is just not an effective means. No matter how many people you should feel should come into the country, whether it be zero or 10 million every year, the border is just not the means to to look at that. It, It deals with technology and other means, and there's a Texas Republican you could listen to that represented more American border than any other politician in the Congress, but Greg Abbott's ignoring this resource right there at his own state. Now, Tim, I heard you say but a few times, so go ahead. 
Well, you know, uh, as far as far as this physical wall, if you built it 30 feet high, it's like John Oliver said, the orange box, and start selling a lot of 31-foot ladders. You know, um, Abbott's <laughs> announcement's grandstanding nonsense. He's trying to build up his political resume by staging a fight with the Biden administration. Polls show that immigration is a hot-button issue with conservative voters, one of the hottest. He needs this fight. He needs to talk about something like this. He certainly doesn't need to say, well, the Rio Grande serves nicely as this natural border. No, no, no. He wants to paint a picture, which is not true, by the way, especially in his part of the country, of throngs of people streaming across the border to get everybody's jobs. You know how that goes. And you you can't present that picture by saying, uh, you know, things in certain areas down there are hunky-dory. Uh, matter, matter of fact, Trump didn't even build um, much of anything in Texas. He concentrated on Arizona and New Mexico and California uh, with his part of it. So, you know, this, this is grandstanding. That That's all it is. I don't know if he's looked at the polls and seen that there's an opportunity for him in 2024 or not. I've always thought that the lowest-ranking congressman in Washington, 435th, uh, whoever that might be, probably sits around and has figured out a way that they can someday be president. I certainly think that the governor of the most populous Republican state uh, feels not only that he could do it, but maybe it's his right to to be the one to do it if Donald Trump doesn't run. So the, that's what I think he's doing now, and I think he's going to do some more stuff. I think this guy's going to do anything and say anything he can do to get himself in the public eye and in the public mind before the primary season starts in 2024. I think if he's reelected, yeah, I think he's going to take a serious look at the 2024 nomination, and I believe stuff like this is exactly what that's all about. Yes, and I do think he is an interesting figure in that he's got a compelling personal story, and I don't know that Republican candidates always have that. Um, You know, they represent more of the haves. And so they come from a place where they may not – some of them, I mean some obviously do, like Greg Abbott, that had to overcome something in their personal story. And that makes for a compelling, you know, first entree. I mean when he says, you know, I got hit, I believe he's on a bicycle by a car, uh, much younger in life, paralyzed, doesn't have use of his legs, and has overcome that on a personal level. I would hope that 100% of people, regardless of their political affiliation, would commend the personal story. Now, we don't have to agree with all the politics, just like on the, you know, the, when it's the flip side. When you have a Max Cleland, you should honor the personal story. You don't always have to agree with the yeah. politics. Um, and so I hope when our yeah. test comes, if it comes on Greg Abbott, 
uh, we respond better than some of the Republicans did in 2002. But um, the that's one thing I do think will be an interesting when he – if he gets the chance to run for president because until yeah, Donald the, Trump the, steps out of the way, nobody else the, can the step problem, The problem, though, with him is not going to be the personal story, and he is very different in, from Matt Cleland in one respect because Matt Cleland did not deal in politics of the extreme. When they go to talking about building – a border wall, the, the nearly 3,000-mile length of the southern border of the United States, uh, when we know what little effect it would have, when we know that it costs $22 million a mile in taxpayer money, when the cost would skyrocket to do it, doing it in some areas that are basically inaccessible. That cost would be prohibitive. Uh, the logistical nightmare that it would take to do it, and at the end of it, for what? Except to make a political statement. That is the, and that is not something that we should be seriously talking about in this country when we actually do have some serious issues to talk about. Yeah, and, and that brings me to the next phase of this. This is obviously a situation for Texas, and I've already heard of you know one of our Texas friends from the show, Matthew Dowd, pointing out that their power grid already, we knew had problems from the snowstorm, but they're starting to have some rolling blackouts, kind of like we've seen in California due to growth and the power grid not being ready. Um, they're starting to have that. I mean, a lot of Texans are like, hey, can we put our state dollars in that? Um, you, you know, so mm -hmm. a, a real problem. But then I think, and, it, and we saw precursors to this. I know Brian Kemp visited the Texas border. Why that's mm -hmm. the governor of Georgia's business, I'm not sure. Kay Ivey of Alabama visited the Texas border. Once again, don't know. Why, why are we doing that? Um, but at what point do some of these Republican states, for these governors to get a little bit of this magic, I hate immigration rub, do they start sending Alabama, Louisiana, well, not Louisiana because John Bell Edwards is there as a check on that, but Georgia tax dollars, Florida tax dollars, uh, Idaho, Wyoming tax dollars, because I think some of the western states where they're very Republican may even be quicker to do this um, than some of the southern states. When did some of those governors and state legislators start sending state tax dollars to Texas, possibly Arizona? Oh. I don't think California and New Mexico would accept them to try to yeah. build on to the wall. Does this become a thing where <laughs> we're fighting to keep our own state tax dollars when we're hundreds <laughs> of miles, in some cases thousands of miles, away from the you know Mexico border? Yeah, look at look at what we're being forced to talk about right now with regards to Texas. I mean, what are the two huge political stories in Texas this year? They didn't want to talk about the grid and the trouble they've had down there with that. What have we been hearing about? This story here and voting rights. And the fact that half the legislature just about had to walk out 
to keep them from passing the most restrictive voting rights legislation in the country. Now, you know, are either of those bread and butter issues? No, they're hot button issues to gin up the base. And it will those two issues will gin up the base not only down there on the border, but in Alabama and in Georgia and in all those Republican states that are dominated by Republicans in the West and, and up in the mountain states and in Mississippi and in Tennessee and over here in South Carolina. It'll gin up the base everywhere because two things they care about is is the voting stuff because a lot of them believe the election was stolen it was rigged they got to fix it la di da and of course the evil uh immigrants who are coming to take their jobs their their families or or, or whatever else they're they're supposedly thinking they're coming here to do and that's why these folks these elected officials in these states that are not on the border go to the border it's good politics for them it's good politics for their base it's something they all share i'll say one thing for them they march in lockstep they get in line that party has always been known to get in line when it came time to rally around the troops, but now they're getting in line to rally around absurdities. I mean, uh, an alternate set of reality, an alternate reality that doesn't exist. Where does this all stop? I mean, we're sitting here seriously talking about sending taxpayer dollars from Atlanta to Texas to help construct a border wall to keep out an immigrant army that doesn't exist. Where does this stop? Yeah, I don't know. I do not know because it's it, most parties, when they lose, they self-correct. I mean, that is the beautiful design of a democracy. If you go too far to the right, too far to the left, where the people aren't with you, then – the people will help you self-correct. Obviously, Donald Trump was too far out of the mainstream in either politics or the way he conducted himself. Enough voters said, we do not want him. A record number of voters said, we do not want him. But instead of the Republicans saying, okay, now let's take whatever people liked about you know, the Trumpian era and then correct it, they're just doubling down. On more wall and more, you know, grievance politics and, you know, owning the libs and everything else. They're not, you know, constructing a plan to take care of, of you know, real issues that affect people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know what point the Republicans do that because in 2012, they wrote an autopsy that came up with some of the conclusions we're talking about, like trying to diversify your party, and then they elected Donald Trump. And through the Electoral College, they got lucky, and somehow, you know, with a minority of the popular vote, they were able to win the White House, and they somehow took that as a mandate, even though they lost in 2018 the House of Representatives, lost uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate again, 
de facto um, since 50-50 plus one with Kamala Harris, and they lost the presidency. I mean, there's like four losses there that you could put together to say this is not the path. Let's self-correct. Now, that doesn't mean become you know Democrats 2.0. Mm-hmm. That means become a right-of-center alternative, not a far, 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 far right center of alternative. Yeah, um, but I'm but... sure we're going to continue to discuss this. In future weeks, because I don't see the Republicans, uh, you know, seeing the the error of their ways no. in the next six days no. until we're on again. Um, no. no, Well, I want to tell you, talk about one of those states that uh, you know Republicans control, Arkansas. We don't talk as much about it as we used to. There were the days of Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Mark Pryor and um, Blanche Lincoln and, and all these folks, but Republicans have pretty much complete control. Of of politics in Arkansas, um, you know, I think a lot of people think the governorship could be decided um, on the Republican side by either their attorney general, um, I forgot her first name, Rutledge, or um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a daughter of former Governor Mike Huckabee, and probably more famously, um, press secretary for Donald Trump, and so. But the Democrats have to have somebody. So a lot of times when a party gets pretty weak uh, electorally, they're unable to recruit very good candidates. Um, Well, there was a gentleman that just announced uh, for governor of Arkansas. Now, he does not have by any means the traditional political profile. Um, He is a scientist. He's also a a minister, but he is – very big into their innovation and tech space in Arkansas, and I don't know that much about Arkansas's tech space. I'm pretty sure it's not Silicon Valley, but it may be far more sophisticated than if I speculated I would give it credit for. This gentleman, Lee, is you know involved in a lot of that. He um, is African-American, and he tells his story. He does this bio video, and if you hadn't found it, Chris Jones, uh, governor of Arkansas, for governor of Arkansas, you know, his website has the video. He is this dynamic individual that's a native um, Arkansan who he can trace his roots to slaves in Arkansas. And this is truly the American dream coming from slavery in the mid-1800s um, to now in the early 21st century. This guy is at the height of education and innovation and just has so, just checks so many boxes of success um, in our current country, and he's running for governor as a Democrat in Arkansas. Um, Tim, in within this buy-sell hold, I want you to just say anything you want to about Chris Jones after watching that video or anything else you've researched mm-hmm. about him. Well, you were right. That intro ad was just magnificent. Uh, as you mentioned to me earlier in the week, If anyone is wondering how to do an introductory ad, watch this one. The website is either Jones for Arkansas or Chris Jones for Arkansas. Um, But but it's easy enough to find, and that intro ad is the best one I've certainly seen in this campaign season so far. It's just magnificently done, a well-told story, well well, well done. Uh, man, what a resume that dude has. You talked about him being a scientist, a uh, minister. Uh, you, you know, I mean, he went to MIT. 
He's 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 got a doctorate degree. His 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 wife's a military pilot. Um, in any other state, um, it, you you could put him in a state like oh I don't know. Put him in a Virginia. Put him put him in any of the states in the Northeast. Uh, put him in the state of California, Washington, Oregon, and watch his career explode. As it is, as it is, David, I'm going to predict this man is going to become nationally known. He's just win, lose, or draw. He's going to become nationally known. The national press is going to want to talk to him. Uh, the progressive press is going to love him because he just has a very compelling story, and uh, he is really fighting the odds in, in his in his home state. I got to give it to him. I tell you what, I'm going to buy him not because I think he will, you know, wind up getting elected governor of Arkansas, barring something unforeseen. You, you and I both know that he will probably not be elected governor of Arkansas. But this man, as I just said, has the vast potential to be a national figure and for a long time. Uh, like Jamie Harrison over in South Carolina, who's now the head of the Democratic National Committee. Um, so I'm buying it. What you got? Yeah, I, and honestly, I think we could, you know, compare him to a lot of um, really good candidates, you know, like Jamie Harrison. But Jamie Harrison, yeah. I guess he was in the industry already. I mean, this guy comes from right. outside the industry, and I guess that might be the only knock is that, oh, well, he didn't, you know, he hasn't served in the legislature or the uh, or some other uh, the county commission of a county or something to understand how government works, but. Um, yeah. His science background is just so amazing. And you think about, and we've talked about this off air, about places in the Sun Belt in the South that are moving forward and places that aren't. And Arkansas, probably by and large, is not. And if you had a governor that really understood innovation that well, when you get into recruiting businesses and industry, I'm sure if he was able to talk the language at a deeper level, how many times would they then beat out other states for those industries? And, and I tell you what, and if you are looking for a state leader for your state government, the ability to bring jobs to your state is probably what, if not number one, top three, Tim? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I would say yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, it, you know, the last Democratic governor of Georgia, Roy Barnes, I think it was maybe his strongest suit. He always yeah. understood keep bringing or keep jobs remaining in Georgia, like the Ford plant probably got five to ten more years in Atlanta in Hapeville because of Roy Barnes. He told the story yeah. up in your uh, – in Chattooga County up there on um, Commerce Street. Um, I, I'm also going to buy him. Uh, I, I agree with you. He has a tough – Road hoe in Arkansas, but it is amazing that you can recruit this kind of candidate. Um, I think mm-hmm. the biggest loser is going to be whatever industry he works in over the next year, year and a half is going to be missing him 
Um, and that's going to be a shame while he campaigns. Um, but it was just something, and hopefully he will um, get, even if he doesn't win the governor's race, he gets some net positive out of this. Something happens somewhere that uh, helps his life and his career and then helps Arkansans by him having a higher profile, whatever that may be, because at the end of the day, hopefully that's why he's running is to make you know, Arkansas a better place to live because he seems to be very committed to the state. I mean, if he wanted to look at the future as soon as, you know, he could tell that the Clinton legacy was moving on and the state was coming very Republican. If he wanted to run for office, he could have moved his family, but he seems to be committed to the natural state. Um, so it looks don't like you we're, you know, fine, Chris Jones. Yeah. Don't, don't you have to give kudos to the Democratic Party in that state down there for being able to land such a dynamic candidate as this man? Because I'm sure that he somehow got under their radar and and they were talking to him. Uh, I don't know if he contacted them or they him, but that is a great get. There's not a state anywhere in this region that is going to be running a, 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 a better candidate for governor that I can see than him, especially one who has never been in politics before. And I don't think that has the stigma attached to it, of course, that it once did. I still like for people to have a background in government, especially when they aspire to higher office. But uh, the average voter now doesn't seem to look at it that way, do they? No, I think um, as long as he can, you know, figure out how to fund the campaign. And I will say this. I don't know if the Democratic Party of Arkansas found him or he, he found them, but I will say this. I think you're right about giving him credit in that because that video and that website are so polished, a lot of times people that haven't been in politics, they don't know. They just don't know mm-hmm. that you can't just you know, film a video with a camcorder and throw up a, a website with a picture out of your church directory. I mean, you've got to have a professional look to things because it's your first impression. So obviously somebody got him connected with people that could put that story with the right storytellers. Um, yeah. You know, combo that. Yeah, that's, well, that's a high-end operation there. You, you can tell it. Yeah, at least that first part, and we'll see how they, they yeah. come through um, after that. And the one good thing is Arkansas's TV is not that expensive. I mean, probably the biggest, the most expensive market is if you choose to um, find those voters in the east part of the state that are in the Memphis uh, TV market. Um, that's probably more expensive mm-hmm. than Little Rock or Fayetteville or Jonesboro or anywhere else has TV stations. Yeah. yeah. Well, um. Final topic, and I don't even know if we'll get to do it justice, um, but this past week, and this is kind of the melding of sports and society and politics, uh, the NFL came out with the rules for COVID in 2021, and they're two very different set of rules. If you have been vaccinated, your season will look more like 2019 than 2020 by far, but if you haven't been vaccinated, you're just getting to redo 2020 all over again, and I don't know who – I guess somebody enjoyed that, but I don't know who it was. Um, but And it looks like anywhere from like 85 to probably 75% of the players and coaches and staff have been vaccinated. But that 15 to 25%, and some of them have been vocal, don't want to get vaccinated. But the NFL 
It's very much pushing the players to get vaccinated for their own good and for the good of their families and people that may be around and just making it easier because you get tested far less. You can't get contact traced in nearly the same way. You can work out and eat and study the playbook and the film and everything else. Open access with your teammates um, like it was pre-2020. If you don't, you pretty much have to go under those old protocols from last summer. Tim, what was your initial thoughts on the vaccinated, non-vaccinated divide in the NFL? Well, I mean, you got to look at the downside of this. Lower, lower vaccination rates for teams are going to put those teams at a disadvantage, like the uh, Dallas Cowboys. I read that uh, uh, only about two-thirds of their players had been vaccinated. Well, say they have two-thirds of their players vaccinated, and let's pick out another team, and let's say Tampa Bay has 95% of their players vaccinated. Now, now who's going to get the upper hand there? Well, you can see who's going to. Um, unvaccinated players are going to be subject to mandatory isolation periods. Well, how's that going to work in a team sport with close contact? You can see, again, a distinct disadvantage for teams with large numbers of unvaccinated players. Uh, players uh, who violate the strict pl- protocols now that have been agreed to by not by the league owners and by the players' association. They sat down, they hammered this thing out. You, if you violate their protocols, you're going to be fine. You're going to be hit in the pocketbook, and you're going to be hit hard. Um, if you haven't been vaccinated, you are subject to daily testing, uh, subject to having to wear masks when you're around other people, and the social distancing thing. Again, how is that going to work in a team sport when most of the people are going to be able, like you said, to play like it's 2019, and you're going to have to do like it's 2020. How is that going to work? Um, it, it, it's going to hit you in the pocketbook in another way, too. They have decided that if you can't go along and, and get vaccinated, then you know you're going to have trouble when it comes time for the team to travel. You can't travel with them. Uh, you're not going to be able to do any of your own marketing sponsorship stuff. Again, it's going to hit you in the pocketbook. My question is, why go through all of that? Do you think, David, it would have been better if the Players Association and the owners had sat down and just said, okay, you're not vaccinated, you're out. This is life and death. Yeah, I mean, or made the incentive so incredible. Um, like, what if they well, said if you got vaccinated, no cut contract for the 2021 season? You know, because some people either are going to, some people either have really, really super strong beliefs, or some people have really super strong fears. Well, if your fear is, oh, I don't know yeah. the side effects, blah blah blah. Okay, the NFL does not have no cut contracts. For the 2021 season, if you get vaccinated, you are on a no-cut contract. And that would include injuries, like whether there was a player that got injured in the weight room, away from the facility, got cut, lost out on millions. That might be an incentive where they could say, well, we didn't force anybody to. We just gave you such a bonus 
why would you not want to? Although, to me, yeah. all the perks and everything else and just the hassle, it seems like it would be worth uh, getting vaccinated um, anyway. And, of course, I, 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 just, mm. I guess I don't have the fear of getting vaccinated. I bit, got vaccinated, didn't hesitate for one second about it because I've, you know, I've got the measles, mumps, and rubella. I don't know if I still got the polio vaccine, but I know the polio vaccine. When I was a little kid, I heard a lot about it because polio was a big monster, major, scary deal, and the vaccination mm-hmm. vaccine made it better. So I, I don't. It seems like if you're anti-COVID vaccine, you should be anti-polio and measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, and any right. other thing that would happen. And, and why would you not want vaccines? If you understand what Jonas Salk and other early vaccine people did, um, we, it just, we, did, we did those vaccines when I was a little kid, David. You didn't hear anybody hollering all this stuff. No, we're not getting vaccinated. I didn't know of a soul that did that. We lined up as school children and took and took one of those vaccines in sugar cubes, the polio vaccine. We got the smallpox vaccination. You had to get it before you could go to school for crying out loud. You didn't hear anybody screaming about that because the older people knew and understood the good that was coming in this because they had seen the ravages of, of these diseases. And we wiped them out in this country. What are they thinking? You know what they're lucky about in the NFL? That they've got a players association, that they have a union. Otherwise, the NFL, like all other businesses, is a business, which means if they didn't have a union, you wouldn't be promised a job. You would yeah. be uh, subject to rules, and if you didn't go along with them, out you go. Well, let's get into this very quickly, and then we got to close this up for today and get our interview. Um, they talk about, you know, Patrick Mahomes. I bet he's been vaccinated. He seems like he has a lot of good sense and understands science. But if he doesn't yeah. want to get vaccinated, they'll keep Patrick Mahomes around. But if you're one of those players that are not in the top quarter to third of the team, if you just become a hassle, you become expendable. And then when it gets down to those final cuts – and two guys seem equal. One's vaccinated, one's not. They play the same position. I bet the vaccinated one's getting kept. And then finally, and I yeah. heard Mike Florio from Pro Football Talk make this point, they're going to bring players in. If you bring a player in, they've got a, a quarantine for like five to seven days. It's not the whole 14, but it's a certain period of time. they got a quarantine, and then they can try out. If you are vaccinated, you try it immediately. Well, my goodness, mm-hmm. you know who's getting the job mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah. And so I think that's uh, uh, going to be a lot of th- uh, things that happen is those players at the top end of the food chain may get a little different treatment. But those ones middle and bottom, they're going to be um, subject to a different set of protocols. They're on peril. And same thing yep, with coaches yep. and staff. If you're you know, some offensive line assistant just breaking into the business, you better get vaccinated. Okay. A quick question for you before we close out, David. Jerry Jones, what does he do when he's looking at a third of his football team that's not vaccinated and just the trauma that's going to come as a result of that? What's he going to do? I I don't know. I mean, you would hope that they would talk and and figure out. I mean, and maybe you bring the players in because it is an identifiable group and you can say – 
what is the problem? Is it um, just just not going to get it? Because, I mean, I've heard of NFL players that didn't renew their license uh, or their car tag. I think Michael Vick fell in that category. And, and so yeah. it can just be kind of not taking care of business. They are young men that are, you know, almost just slightly Mad out of college. Um, proof. Yeah, I know. And then, or it could be that there's some you know, true believers that, you know, the, the COVID's a hoax, blah, blah, blah. And it could be some, you know, fear uh, because we've heard about, you know, the T- Tuskegee experiments and people, African-Americans maybe more uh, hesitant because of the past, which I think the COVID vaccine is vastly different than what tragically happened decades ago. Um, I think our country's mm-hmm. in a better place um, than, than that. Um, but find out what are the reasons. And then another thing is, while some of these shots are two shots, you do have uh, the Pfizer vaccine that's one shot. You mm-hmm. know, it'd be better to get that third knocked down to 10% if you could just give them all one shot and it just be the Pfizer and be done. Don't worry about their second shot because we know that's at least yeah. 85% effective. And it's like more like 99% effective against the more extreme uh, you know, versions of COVID. So. Um, something yeah. there to think about. Well, Tim, I know that uh, this is kind of where we're uh, closing out the rest of the show, but um, mm-hmm. we're going to you know, pick up with this interview, and I hope everybody stays to listen to Dr. Belt, and we do hope to have him on the show later. I may come on at the very end and close this out, but until then, this has been Tim on the Cozy Vine. Good evening, folks. of the University, George Washington University. Uh, Dr. Belt, um, welcome to the Kazuvan. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Yes. Well, Dr. Belt, uh, just start out with telling us a little about your background with, a, you know, of course, a bent towards politics. Yeah, sure. Um, I did my Ph.D. at the University of Southern California, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on uh, the title was Metaphor and Political Persuasion. And I actually did uh, a a series of experiments testing uh, different types of political messages in video, audio, video, audio only and text uh, formats. Uh, So I've always been very interested in political psychology and how that matches on to uh, practical politics and uh, real-world advertising and and campaign strategy and the like. I've always been uh, interested in getting students involved in real-world politics. And while I was at USD, I ran the internship program. My first uh, tenure-track job out of my PhD was at the University of Hawaii at Hilo, where I I uh, was a professor for 15 and a half years and also ran the internship program there, taught campaigns and elections, presidency, Congress, all manner of uh, American politics. And then I had a sabbatical where I spent uh, part of it at Wellesley College and taught there for a little while and I was also at the Library of Congress for a fellowship uh, to um, study political humor and uh, how that uh, influences politics. And I really got uh, a dose of uh, Potomac fever. I fell in love with the uh, with the Washington D.C. area, and uh, just the um, it's the best place to be if you're a political scientist, that's for sure. And uh, when a job came open at uh, George Washington University, I applied for it, and uh, I've been there since uh, January 2019. Yes, now it's interesting. Obviously, being in politics, and all of our listeners are interested in politics. No better place than D.C., but if you love beautiful tropical weather, uh, no better place than Hawaii to be. So you kind of had 
the best of both worlds, just not at the same time. Uh, any chance you can talk the, the nation's leaders into moving the capital to Honolulu? <laughs> that would be really nice. Uh, you know, if, uh, I think that's, you know, one of the things that uh, led to my island fever, as they call it, was the lack of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, political interaction with, uh, you know, national figures and such. Uh, although the, um, the time change with the, uh, the rest of the uh, lower 48 is, is quite a bit to uh, handle. Yes, well, it's very interesting that you mentioned that because I had that as a, a write-off question. I've heard that a lot of people, not even in politics, uh, but certainly I'm sure it affects politics too, uh, when they move there, they don't stay as long as one would expect because it is such a, uh, not a culture shock, but a time shock. And then I would think that would even be exacerbated with politics when, you know, the House and the Senate recess at 9 o'clock in the morning and everything's happening it's so many hours later. In Hawaii, how big a factor is that in uh, particularly the political life and how it's maybe isolated? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's really a factor. And I, I think it is both time-based as well as cultural, and I'm happy to comment on both of those. Uh, but uh, in terms of, uh, you know, our congressional delegate or the congressional delegation from Hawaii, speaking as if I'm still there, uh, I think they should uh, get extra combat pay for, for what they have to deal through with having to take those 10, 10, 10 and a half hour flights all the way to Washington, D.C. and back to uh, their home district. It's much harder on them, not, not necessarily just in terms of the length of travel, but also the, the whole, you know, Jet lag. I mean, when you go east, it's much, much worse. <laughs> and if you're and if you're six uh, six hours off, it makes uh, those committee hearings and uh, and floor votes and and everything really, really tough on them. So uh, it's it's difficult. And there's a cultural expectation in Hawaii that that you actually be in the district and engage in what we what they call talk story, which is uh, open open sessions with constituents. And so trying to maintain that balance is pretty difficult for. Uh, the uh, federal legislators in Hawaii. Yes. Well, um, now tell me about, um, I, I was watching something recently. They were talking about, you know, D.C. becoming a state, uh, um, Puerto Rico becoming a state, and they talked about the historical nature of when two states enter early in our nation's history, it was a slave state and a free state. And then later um, they started understanding, okay, well, let's have a Democratic state or a Republican state. Um, and when Hawaii and Alaska entered, Hawaii was the Republican state and Alaska was the Democratic state. How exactly was where or where was exactly Hawaii um, politically at that point? Yeah, well, Hawaii um, at, at that point, as as you say, was much more Republican, but it was more Republican, I think, in you know a traditional Republican sense, and uh, you know some of the uh, sensibilities what we would have thought of as uh, the Northern Republicans in the 1950s and 1060s, uh, a bit more liberal. But um, uh, you know, you can look back at the uh, at the governors of Hawaii, and many of them, you know, although they, you know, that's not necessarily uh, partisan, but uh, certainly eventually aligned with the Republican Party. And there has been some success, some success uh, with Republicans running in Hawaii, but lately it's been very, very one-sided in that state. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I think, uh, a product of, you know, the realignment that happened in the 1960s across the United States, and, of course, especially in the South, where, uh, you know, people started sorting themselves uh, out based on, um, 
you know, a number of different social issues rather than uh, the tradition uh, of the long-term dominant party in those days. Yes. Well, now, um, now, talking more about today, we do know that Hawaii tends to be more democratic, although I think not too long ago there was a Republican governor. Um, so mm-hmm. kind of tell us, like, I guess a Democrat wins more time, so maybe how does a Republican win office? Mm-hmm. What does a Republican, um, you know, coalition to victory look like? And then, of course, that will tell us where the Democrats uh, didn't use their usual game plan in Hawaii. Right. Yeah. Well, here's you know here's the thing that happens when you have one party rule in a state is uh, you get uh, infighting and corruption. <laughs> I mean, these are that's what uh, having a strong uh, you know um, party of resistance, you know, the loyal opposition is is really necessary in in state politics uh, because the uh, one party can can get away with things, and that's actually what happened in the 1990s. Uh, there were a number of different scandals that hit the um, Democratic Party uh, and uh, all, all the way up to the top, and that allowed Linda Lingle, uh, who was formerly uh, mayor of Maui County, which includes four islands, uh, to become uh, the, the governor, and she was successful uh, in for two terms. And, you know, it had to do with sort of, you know, just this real conflux of uh, – Democrats really messing up and abusing their power, uh, getting into uh, you know conflicts among one another. You know, there's always going to be breakdowns uh, if you have one party dominance. You're going to have fissures within that party, and uh, if you don't have you know strong oversight or people who are incentivized electorally because they can win, uh, you know, being an out party trying to win those seats, uh, trying to do the opposition research and, and dig up the, the dirt on the other party. Uh, then, you know, things, things can happen. And so uh, Linda Lingle was in the right space. She ran in 1996 and then ran again in, I'm sorry, 1998 and then ran again in 2002, I believe it was. Uh, and she lost the first time she ran for uh, governor, but then she spent her time building the Republican Party as chair of the Republican Party. She didn't go away. She was very active and really did a grassroots uh, style of, uh, you know, really meeting with people, door-to-door party building, uh, getting the volunteers so that she had, you know, that sort of machinery in place when it was time to run when things had uh, had gone, you know, south for the Democrats. And she didn't make any enemies during her first term. And so uh, you have to sort of mess up. Uh, Hawaiian voters are pretty forgiving. And uh, so they elected her to a second term. But during that second term, she... Uh, she made some enemies with the teachers' union, which was a very powerful union. There were some furloughs that happened uh, in accordance with the uh, with, uh, trying to deal with the recession in 2008, the Great Recession. And uh, so her subsequent U.S. Senate bid was really derailed by her inability to uh, recapture that success that she had as governor. Yes. Now, so um, I know Hawaii's, you know, many islands, and um, it seems – from the outsider that the uh, population's heterogeneous but not necessarily one island to the other. Um, are there certain islands that are more Democratic and Republican? Are there certain demographic groups in the state that are more, you know, Democratic and Republican? Oh, certainly. Uh, and, you know, you have, uh, you know, a similar 
uh, thing going on as to uh, what's in the, in the United States, where you know the metropolitan areas are much more uh, much more democratic, and of course, there's really only one, and that's Honolulu. Uh, but um, if you look at uh, areas where it's they're more uh, resort heavy, the more touristy areas tend to be a little bit more Republican. Uh, there's there's more developers in those areas. I'm thinking Maui County and the west side of the Big Island of Hawaii, where Kona is, where there's a lot of uh, of resorts and such, and um, you know businesses that that cater to those uh, areas and people interested in lower taxes and, and uh, that that sort of thing. So that really does influence that. So it, it can be broken down, you know, even within one county, like Hawaii County, which is the Big Island of one side versus another side. But then you have Maui County, which is a little bit more uh, Republican than the other areas, and the other areas are pretty, pretty staunchly Democratic. Yes. Well, um, let me um, talk to you about some personalities, or, or one in particular. Um, one of your congr- well, one of Hawaii's congressional representatives up until the last election, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, kind of, um, you know, gained national attention. Now, I know that um, to me, I find her a very unique individual. There's a lot of people that like her, but they seem to be people that vote in the Republican primary, and, the, and we're talking about outside around the nation. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that really, really don't like her. And they're Democrats, and she's a Democrat, and yet she endorsed Bernie Sanders. Kind of explain Tulsi Gabbard to us from a somewhat, you know, folks who just don't know her that well. Right, absolutely. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, um, uh, let me uh, get a little historical on here. The, the, uh, her, her father um, was a uh, state senator and uh, ran for Congress. So he was in politics for quite some time, Mike Gabbard. And he uh, was a Republican. And uh, he eventually, I believe, switched parties uh, and uh, made a name for himself uh, in terms of his opposition to same-sex marriage. And that was a a big thing for him. And so that's one of the reasons why Tulsi Gabbard, when she uh, ran for president, had to put together a statement trying to explain her opposition to same-sex marriage and talking about how, you know, she changed her mind when she actually served in the military. Uh, you know, she does have a military background, and so, you know, there are some um, some aspects of military background that lead a little bit more to some, you know, conservative politics. Uh, but, you know, she knows that uh, it's a democratic state, and, you know, that's you got to play the, play the game if you're going to be uh, a representative um, for Congress and from, from Hawaii. And... I think uh, in terms of her presidential run, uh, the, um, the worst kept secret in, in Hawaii was that Tulsi Gabbard wants to be president. <laughs> and she's always wanted to be president, even when she ran, she ran for Congress. Uh, so, you know, her ambition was certainly there. And I think that she really was trying to style herself as sort of a, a McCain type of maverick, that she, you know, was willing to meet with Donald Trump after he won the 2016 election. Uh, to talk to him about, you know, opportunities. And um, when she ran in 2000, you know, she would take, you know, some very liberal issue, positions on issues. As you said, in um, in 2016, one of the first endorses of Bernie Sanders and, of course, endorsed him after she pulled out in, um, in 2020. Uh, so she does have some you know, really progressive politics, but she also has some, um, you know, more conservative uh values as well and that uh, you know stems from her background as well 
Yes, well, just to follow up on that, she didn't run again for her congressional seat. How is she mm-hmm. received, I guess, in the state and in the district now? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm not there anymore, so, <laughs> so I don't okay. exactly have my ear to the ground and uh, on on Tulsi. But uh, it seems like she sort of uh, wore out her welcome. There is a cultural aspect to electoral politics in in Hawaii that you you kind of have to put in the work and wait your turn. And and her vaulting up and over everyone and shortly after being uh, elected to Congress, appearing on Vogue magazine and, and such, and, and, you know, really seeming to chase the spotlight rather than doing the work, uh, I think uh, really ruffled uh, a lot of voters' feathers in, in, in that regard. Yes, well, you may... All right, that was the first part of our interview with Dr. Todd Belt. He has agreed to come back on um, probably early fall and speak with us about human politics. Also, one more Hawaii question um, that I think will be very interesting. We're going to re-ask him that because uh, we had a little audio issue at the end, and um, I want to get that full answer. So we're going to kind of open back up with that one. Dr. Todd Belt of George Washington University um, joins us in a few weeks. But until then, been the Kudzu Vine. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world?